It's always such a joy to have our youth lead us in worship the times that they do, and today was no exception. Thank you very much, young people, for that time of worship. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 18, the 18th chapter of John's Gospel, as another transition takes place today. We have been looking at the pastoral prayer, the prayer of Jesus in John uh, chapter 17 for the last several weeks as he has prayed for his church and prayed for those who will follow after those disciples and even in that sense praying for you and me today. And we looked at what that prayer meant and the, the depth of it and the importance of it to know that even today Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father offering that same prayer for us even today. What a glorious truth that is. What a glorious thought that is. But today we began the passion. Today we began looking clearly to the cross. We, we're going to see today, and we, we sang about it in a, in a glorious way this morning, but about his betrayal uh, when Judas led those into the garden and found him. As he's been praying, as he's been preparing his disciples, and now as we see him being arrested and prepared to be carried away and ultimately to go to the cross. Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, as I read it this morning, and follow along if you would. When Jesus had spoken these things, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there is a garden, in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, probably the Sanhedrin, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Who do you seek? Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene, or literally Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am. Now, your translation probably says, I am he, and you'll notice the he is probably in parentheses. There's no he there. There's just the words, ego I me in the Greek, I am, very significant, as you already know. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their own way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink of it? Here we have a garden. I had our youth, uh, uh, Grant, read earlier as he read the passage of Scripture in the Scripture reading for the hearing of the Word. I had him read from the garden thousands of years earlier, the Garden of Eden where the temptation and the fall took place. You know, John has always had an interest in his gospel in paralleling the book of Genesis. At the very beginning, we saw two years ago, 
when he started, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, was very much a parallel to Genesis 1-1. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was the original creation, and now in Christ there is the new creation. And we saw that parallel. And throughout this gospel, John has loved to draw on imagery and ideas from the book of Genesis. I think there's a little bit of that in John's presentation of the prayer here and the time that Jesus entered, went out and entered into the garden across the ravine of Kidron and there was betrayed by, by Judas. I, I think there's some, some contrast there that John wants us to see. Now, that's not original with me. I want you to know that. Author W. Pink, A.W. Pink, years ago in his commentary, his massive commentary on the book of John, made that parallel. And he draws out the contrast at some length. I'm going to just give it to you. Uh, briefly here. Uh, Pink made the, uh, the point that the entrance of Christ into the garden at once reminds us of Eden. The contrast between them are indeed most striking. In Eden, all was delightful. That's the expression that is used in the book of Genesis, that the garden was created and it was delightful. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, it was terrible. There were soldiers with, with weapons drawn. There were soldiers with torches. There were soldiers looking for Jesus. In Eden, in Eden, Adam and Eve parlayed somewhat with Satan, hearing the temptation and succumbing to that temptation. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought the, uh, excuse me, uh, sought the face of God. So Adam and Eve parlayed with Satan. Jesus sought his father's face. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. The conflict in Eden took place by day. The conflict in Gethsemane was waged at night. Uh, in the one, Adam fell before Satan. In the other, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, the race was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ announced to fulfill the word which he had spoken, Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from his father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself in shame. In Gethsemane, Christ boldly showed himself. In Eden, God sought Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought God. From Eden, Adam was driven. From Gethsemane, Christ was led. In Eden, the sword was drawn, indeed established at the gates of the garden to keep man out. In Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed after Peter had drawn it. And Jesus said, put away the sword. I am going to drink of the cup that my Father has given me. There's great parallel, there's great contrast in the two gardens that you see in the Scripture, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and all of this is taking place there in this 18th chapter, these first 11 verses. And, and Jesus has gone out with his disciples. They have gone to a place where they met often. Some look at that and say, well, why did they come get him at night? You know, why did they come after Jesus? Why did it require Judas to betray Jesus? Why everything Jesus did was in the open. Every miracle he performed, every teaching he gave, we're all out in the open. The, the Sanhedrin for sure knew who he was. They, they could recognize him without the aid of Judas betraying him. And all they had to do was lead this Roman cohort to him. And, and they would find him and they could do whatever they wanted to. Some have said they did it this way because they were afraid of the people. 
they've certainly been afraid of the people throughout the Gospel of John. They sought to stone him at one point. They sought to throw him over a cliff at one point. They, they sought to, to bring an end to his life on numerous occasions. And each time we saw that it was interrupted because the, the, the authorities were afraid it might cause a riot. It might cause a, a, a rebellion in the city. And so they never arrested him. They come up to him at night. They come to him at a time when they know that the people are restful, the people are in their place and all of that, in their places of rest for, for the night. But the reality is I don't think it's so much they were afraid of the people in this particular episode as it were they were afraid of Jesus himself. They had seen his power. They had seen the miracles that he had performed. They had, they had seen that there was something unique about this man. He, he was not just a prophet. I mean, they wanted to give him that status and, and try to pass him off as that. But he was not just a prophet. And even the authorities began to see that there was something happening. Perhaps even within these soldiers, there were those who had heard his preaching and teaching. There were some within who began to think that maybe he was more than the religious authorities were willing to give him credit for. We don't know, perhaps even there were some within these Roman cohort, within this Roman cohort, that had become believers in seeing him and knowing the truth that he had spoken. John does not clarify that, and that's mere speculation to do that, but something strange is taking place here. And they come out to find him. Judas is, in, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke has talked about betraying him with a kiss. And the the synoptic gospels kind of focus more on the suffering in the garden. They focus more on what Jesus was going through as he, as he struggled over this cup that he was about to bear. John approaches it from a total different perspective. Not a different perspective uh, in, in sense of truth, but in a different, from a different angle, from a different lens shot, camera shot, if you will. He, John sees Jesus as being in absolute control of the whole situation. Some have looked at Jesus and thought, oh, what a tragedy. A man who was good and righteous and holy and, and pure and sinless and everything else, being captured by these cruel and, and godless Romans and, and, and even religious leaders who profess to know God and profess to believe in God, and yet they, they still came after him. And, and what a tragedy that was. And on a human's perspective, that was a tragedy. But John wants us to understand with all clarity, without any doubt, without any problem, that Jesus controlled the entire situation. They're in the garden. They've crossed out after the prayer. They're, they're, they're meeting together. We don't know what Jesus is saying to them at this particular time, but it says that while they were there, Judas had gathered together with the Roman cohort and the, authority, the religious authorities, and they came looking for him. And look at verse 3 how they came. They came with lanterns and torches and weapons. There, there might be just a little bit of, of irony there that John is wanting us to see in the fact that they are coming at night with torches and lanterns to try to find the one who is the light. Remember back in, in chapter 1, verse uh, verses 4 and 5, he said, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It, it might be very well that John has wanted us to see that these are men who come after the light of the world, holding torches of all things. Mere matches compared to the brilliance of his light. Mere 
pricks of light compared to who he was. There's irony in this matter that they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. It's kind of amazing too. They, they came with swords drawn and spears in hand as though they were going to have to somehow wrestle him to the ground and tie him up and haul him off. I mean, you know, it was as though he were some kind of dangerous criminal that might just shore up these other 11 men with him and somehow fight against them. There's irony in the whole, escap- the whole uh, uh, picture here that John is drawing for us. He says that, that Judas received the Roman cohort. Now, that's an interesting word. It's a very technical word. Uh, a cohort was a military term for the Roman soldiers. Strictly, a cohort was the 10th part of a legion and comprised 600 men. Of course, cohort was not always at full strength. It didn't always come out in that vast number. The number could vary from time to time, from place to place. But, but John clearly wants us to understand that there were a lot of soldiers that were coming after Jesus. As a matter of fact, the Romans were not unknown for overkill. They were not unknown for going after a small situation with massive force so that they would, the people would know we're in charge here, we're in control here, we're the ones ruling the day. As a matter of fact, if you remember over in the book of Acts, when, when Paul was arrested and going to be taken to, uh, to Felix, they, they commanded, they said, and they called to him two of the centurions, and they said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea and get 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. Now, now this was 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen that were going to go in order to take Paul to Felix. One man. Just, just one man. There's at least Jesus and 11 more here in the garden. So there's no doubt they probably came with a desire for overkill. But it might be that John is just saying here, the the cohort came, sort of like we might say, you know, yesterday there was a raid at such and such a place, and the Somerset police went in and arrested so-and-so. We wouldn't mean that the entire police force of Somerset garnered together called everybody that he was off duty and brought them in and they all went to arrest this one man. It would just be a terminology to say a part of the Somerset police force came and they made the arrest. But, but John wants us to see that there is a large number, there is an, an unusual number coming just to take this man, Jesus. They're prepared. They're not going to let anything be left to chance. They want to show that they're in charge. John wants us to see that they're not in charge. John wants us to understand that in all of this, from the beginning of his ministry until he hangs on the cross and ultimately comes forth from the grave in the resurrection, in all of that, Jesus is in charge. As we look at our seniors going out, and as Todd has already commented on in reading from from Truth Matters a bit, there are going to be challenges to the name of Jesus because you claim that name. And that's what's taking place in the garden. It, it, they're, they're not really afraid of him because he might lead an army to take over the, the city and, and run out Rome out of town. That, that's not why they're afraid of him. They're afraid of him because he brings a much greater danger. He brings a danger to their own pride and their own, uh, and their own self-sufficiency. 
and their own selfishness. And that's what's taking place here. So that they come, and they're outside the garden. Jesus is inside, and he sees them coming. And what does he do? Well, verse 4 says, Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming, that were about to take place, coming upon him, he went forth, and he said to them, Whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? We're out here just spending some time praying and, and with my friends in the garden. Who are you looking for? Jesus knew who they were looking for. And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus simply spoke two little Greek words. Ego, I me. I am. I am. I am he. I am the one you're looking for. I am. Now, those two little words are very significant. He used them in every one of the seven I am sayings throughout the gospel. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the, the good shepherd. All of those I am statements, he used those same two little words, I am, because those, name, those words are immediately identified with the sovereign God, Yahweh. They're immediately uh, identified with the burning bush experience that Moses had when Moses said, who am I going to go down into Egypt and say, send me? And God simply said, tell them that I am has sent you. I am who I am. I am that I am. Just tell them that I am has sent you. In the Hebrew, Yahweh, in the Greek, ego, I me. I am the one who is sending you. I don't know if it's because some of the Roman soldiers actually had begun to believe and see that he was the Christ. I don't know if it's because they were superstitious and when they heard that word, they knew that these Jews would identify that with, with, with their true and living God, the one true and living God. I don't know why they did it, but immediately upon here, speaking those words, ego I me, I am, it says that the soldiers who were standing there fell back. They drew back and they fell to the ground. Oh, there was a there was at least some sense of awe there. And I don't know if maybe for just a brief moment, after having their eyes blinded, after having their, the, the truth of who Christ was covered for all this time, that just for one brief moment, much like he did with four of the disciples uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when they saw his glory, if maybe just for one split second, just for one small amount of time, all of a sudden, the blinds were removed, the blinders were removed, and they saw for a moment, I am the glory of the living God in Christ Jesus. I don't know. But something scared them to death. Something caused them to fall away and to fall to the ground. Let me tell you something, young people, as you go off to college and to work, and, and, and this goes for everybody in this room, at the name of Jesus, you're going to get some kind of reaction. The name of Jesus is not a neutral word, okay, or a neutral name. The name of Jesus, most people are not going to say, oh, okay, no big deal. No, they're not. They're going to respond one of two ways. They're either going to respond with belligerence and opposition, even hatred. Like those who came out in the night with swords drawn and torches and lanterns looking for him, are they going to respond in awe? And they may not come all at once in either way. 
And the ones who respond in hatred may have their eyes opened at some point by the Holy Spirit of God, and they may respond in awe at a later date. But what I want you to understand is, as you go forth as Christian believers, you've got got your notebooks, you've got your Bibles, you've got a book to prepare you even further. But I remind you that you're just now beginning to go out into a world where you're going to see real opposition. You're going to see a world that really wants to be their own God. They really do want to be in charge of their own life. They want to be like these soldiers and these religious leaders where as they come to the garden, they want to show that they're in charge. They're really not. And you may go and you may say, well, it's just too much to stand against. And it is a lot, I'll tell you. It's a lot to stand against. But the name of Jesus is a powerful name. The name of Jesus, when when just spoken, will elicit a response one way or the other. And I'm just challenging you, each one of you, as you go out of this place, out of the protection of your parents' home, out of the protection of being with your church family here every Sunday, I want you to understand that you don't go in weakness. You go with a powerful name attached to your name. Don't be ashamed of it. Paul said in Philippians, you know, this is the name above every name. And one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Some will do it today, some will do it tomorrow, and some will do it at the end of time when it's too late. But one of these days, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know why they'll do that? Why they will do that? It's because He is. He really is Lord. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord that sustains everything that there is in this world. He's the Lord that holds all things together by the word of his power. He's the Lord who is the redeemer and the savior and the forgiver of sin. He is the Lord who who, who will come again one day and, and show his victory in all totality. You know, we sang, I, I, I get teary. Every time we sing that, all I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. He's, 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 he's all I have. I, oh, I've got some intelligence, and I've got some strength, and I've got some ideas, and I've got... But all of those are nothing compared to knowing Him. And that goes for everybody in here, not just these seniors who sit here before me. It goes for every single person in this place. You have to come to that place of realizing that really all I've got is Christ. He's all I've got. He's all that matters. The psalmist said, listen, whom do I have in heaven but you? And who on earth do I desire but you? And the absolute implied answer is there, nobody and nothing. Lord, it's you and you alone that I need and I proceed to find. That I proceed to pursue. That I proceed forth to know better. So who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And they fell to the ground. And he said again, who are you looking for? Whom do you seek? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I told you I am he. I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. And he did that because he had already said in his prayer, I'm not going to lose a single one, not to this bunch of rabble-rousers. I'm in control of protecting those. I want you to know something. 
Jesus is committed to protecting you. He prayed for your protection. He prayed in that high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, I come to you and I ask you to protect them from the evil one. Now you got Jesus praying for the Father to guard you from the evil one, protect you from the evil one, and you got the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit encuffing you and, and, and coming around you as your protection. Let me tell you something, young people, let me tell you something, adults. Jesus is going to protect those who are his. Those who are his, he's not going to lose a single one. It's the great glory of the gospel. We are in Christ. And Christ is in us. And that is the hope of glory. That is the hope of fruition. That is the hope of all eternity. Christ in you. And you in unity, in union with the Lord Christ. It's a truth that we sometimes forget, but it's the truth that Jesus is wanting us to see, even in his arrest, even at what looks like the most vulnerable point of his life and ministry. Soldiers with weapons all around. And you've got to see the irony of Peter. I mean, don't you see just how ironic it is that, that here are all these, a cohort, Maybe two, three, uh, could have been up to 600 soldiers. Probably wasn't the whole cohort, but, but a big number, uh, a show of force. And here's Peter, who happens to have a sword. Now, the word used here is makari, which is a Greek word for a sword that is really like a dagger. It's not a broad sword. It's not a big fighting sword. It's just a dagger that can be concealed in your tunic. And so here these soldiers come, probably with broad swords, double-edged swords could swing and swipe your head off just like that and and here Peter sees them coming and, and Jesus has said his name they've fallen back and Peter draws in and draws out this makari this this dagger and and it just happens that the high priest's servant's close by and so he takes a swipe at him and he ducks and he cuts his ear off he wanted his head I'm convinced he cuts his ear off the synoptic gospel tells that Jesus healed his ear, and, and everything was fine. And he said to Peter, Peter, put the sword in the sheath. Why? How can I not drink of the cup that my Father has given me? My purpose is not to fight this cohort. My purpose is not to show that I can defeat these soldiers. Do you think he could have? Absolutely. Scripture says you could have called angels, 10,000 angels, a legion of angels, and they would have come, and that Roman cohort, those Jewish authorities, they would have been gone. No big deal. But he said, Peter, that's not why I'm here. I have come for this very time, for what is beginning in chapter 18 in the garden and will culminate on Golgotha, on Calvary. This is why I've come. This is the cup my Father has given me. I shall not refuse it. I must do it. You see, Jesus says, I'm in control of the situation. I'm carrying through the situation, and I'm doing exactly what the Father purposed. This is no accident. This is no, this is no mess up in the plan. This is no, this is no plan A gone awry. 
This is why I came. When you go out in August and you go into classrooms represented and, and have your faith challenged at every point, I want you to remember that the one who goes with you is the great I am. The one who goes with you is the one who will protect you and guard you. He's the one who refused to turn away from the sacrifice to be your Savior. He's the one who refused to turn away and refused not to go to the cross. Not just as a symbol, not just as, a, as some kind of example, but as a substitute for you as you've trusted him believed in him, confessed him. And I just pray that as, as you go, that you will know the power of the one whom he has sent. He, we've already seen him talking in 14 and 16. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you by yourself. I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to send a protector. I'm going to send the paraclete. And that is the one he has sent to each one of us who believe. Jesus said, I am. Who are you looking for? Jesus, I am. I am he. Who are you looking for? Are you looking for, are you looking for yourself? <laughs> you know, when I was a, in high school and college, this will date me just a little bit. Everybody said, man, I'm just trying to find myself. You know, somebody goes off on a way and they say, oh, they're just trying to find themselves. I always wanted to say, you're right there. I never tried to find myself. I always knew where I was. But a lot of people are trying to find God in themselves. They want to be their own God. A lot of people are trying to find fulfillment in something other than the only source that can bring real fulfillment, and that is Christ Jesus. I challenge you this day. Every single person in this room. Challenge you, can you sing that song that we sang and mean it? All I have is Christ. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my parents. I love my sister, my brother, whatever. But my love for Christ makes all that pale in comparison. Because of the final analysis, all I have is Christ. You know, just before that garden experience, they shared together in that last meal. And we're going to do that this morning as a part of this message, a part of understanding the sacrifice. We're going to come to the Lord's table. I know we got a lot of visitors here this morning. If you're here this morning and you are a disciple of Christ, if you've trusted Christ... I invite you to participate in this meal with us. This is not Grace Baptist meal. It's not the Baptist church meal. It's, it's the Lord's meal for all those who are his disciples. And I invite you to share with us in it if the Lord gives you freedom to do that. I ask parents to police their own children. We don't police who takes it and who doesn't take it. But only this is for believers. This is for those who have placed their faith and their trust in Christ. You're here not a believer, I would ask you just to let it pass. Paul said it's, it's a serious matter, and some have not taken of it properly, and they're asleep, they're sick. Some have died. So I invite you to be serious about it 
as we come. But as we come to this table, the bread represents his body that is being arrested there in the garden and about to be taken off to Calvary. The juice represents his blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for us that we might know God, that we might have relationship with the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, holy God of the universe. That blood sealed that covenant for all who believe. I invite you this morning to think about that as we take it. The one who was arrested in that garden bodily and who hung on that cross bodily is the one we think about and remember as we take this meal. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray together as the deacons who will be serving this meal will come and prepare themselves here at the front. Father, as we come together this morning, we ask your blessings on this, this meal, this bread and this fruit of the vine, symbolizing your body and your blood that's given. Father, we ask that you will search us, even as David said in the psalm, search us and know our hearts, try us and know, Lord, our anxious thoughts, if there be any sin in us, Lord, any Anything that's blocking our relationship with you, our relationship with our brothers and sisters, Lord, would you expose that by your light this morning and take it away as we confess it and repent of it in your presence. Lord, as we take of the bread and take of the cup, would, we, would you help us to remember that great sacrifice that we are now facing in John's gospel? Father, help us continue in prayer even now. As you receive the elements, hold them in your hand until we eat together. The Apostle Paul reminds us Therefore, there, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but 
mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not even subject itself to the law of God, and it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also glorified. And these whom He, he justified, and these who He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am confident that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. said that he took the bread and he broke it. And he said to those there in the upper room with him, this is my body, which is given for you. This is the body that will bring the forgiveness of sin. And pay the price required for our redemption. He said, take it and eat it and do this in remembrance of me. And after that, he took the cup. Jeremiah had spoken of the new covenant. The writer of Hebrews had quoted Jeremiah in reminding us of the new covenant. That in the new covenant, you shall have life, and you shall know God, and your sins shall be forgiven. You'll be in relationship with him for all of eternity, and with one another in Christ. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Take and drink it and do this in remembrance of me. The scripture says that after they had done that, they sang a hymn and they went out. Our youth are going to join us again back up here and we're going to sing a hymn thinking about his grace and about his goodness the glory of Christ. It, it's a hymn of commitment. It's a hymn of invitation. I invite you to Christ this morning if you don't know him. I invite you to confess him. He said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, then I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. I invite you to Christ this morning. Not to a church, not to a preacher, not to a religion, but I invite you to Christ. Maybe you're here and you don't, you say, well, I I don't know what that means. If you want to talk, I'm here. Other pastors are here. Uh, any of these men in this front row can share with you. Uh, after the service, you, you catch one of us. 
and give us a chance to talk with you about that. Let's stand together. Let's sing together. As God leads in your life, you be obedient to him.